Good morning, brothers. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Dave, thank you for that prayer. As someone said to me exactly what I was thinking, we probably could just sing the doxology and go home after that prayer. Uh, that was very encouraging and maybe one of the most important, if not the most important thing you're going to hear this morning besides when we read the scripture that's before us in Acts chapter 4. Uh, as Dave mentioned his prayers, as I sent the email out yesterday, we're coming to the third part in our series on prayer. Remember, our desire is that we would grow to be men of prayer. Um, and so as we come to this, uh, this third section, we looked, first of all, at the Old Testament, the prayers of the Old Testament. And then um, we looked at the prayers of Christ in the last few weeks. And now we're going to be looking at the prayers of the church. So we're looking at men and women as they prayed uh, in the light of or, or after the cross. They, they now have that full knowledge that even those in the Old Testament only knew through the hope and the promise that they had of the Messiah. Now a fuller picture has come to God's people as they see what uh, Christ has done for them in his death and resurrection. I'm very fascinated by this prayer. In fact, I told my wife earlier this week, I think this is my favorite prayer in, in all of Scripture, mostly because I'm just so curious about it, so fascinated about it. And what I, what I think I'm fascinated about is I'm fascinated whenever I get to see courage in the midst of fear. When I get to see courage in the midst of fear, I, I just want to lean into it. I want to I know more about it. I don't know if any of you took the chance to look at the body cam video um, of the two police officers uh, in Nashville, um, Rex Engelbert and Michael Colazzo were the two police officers whose body cam videos were um, made public uh, after the shooting in Nashville. Very fascinating to watch. And this is what I found fascinating. Um, it was clear, it was clear that these two police officers were determined as quickly as possible to take down the threat uh, as it was happening. At the same time, you could see that it was clear that they, along with their fellow officers, were afraid. Like you could watch it happening, you recognize, though they were willing themselves to get out of the car and to run into the building and to move down the hallways, and eventually when they started hearing the gunshots, to move up the stairs and move towards the, the sound of the gunshots, you could tell at each corner there was a there was a hesitancy. There was a, there was a sense in which you could, it, it was palpable. You could feel them thinking, I might face death around this corner. And you could see um, Officer Colazzo with his hand on the shoulder of the officer in front of him. They both paused, and then he just nudged him forward, and they both went. And what I was struck by in the midst of that was, was that very bravery, that very courage in the midst of fear. Um, they, weren't, they weren't just cavalier. They weren't just guys like, oh, yeah, whatever. I'm just going for it. You could tell that they were battling their own fears and their own worries. That's what we have here in Acts chapter 4 in this prayer. The believers in Christ were not immune to fear. They're not immune to worry. Clearly, they're, they're human. They're like us. And yet, in the midst of this context, this is what they pray. I find that fascinating. 
So let's read um, beginning in verse 23. We're going to get into the context a little more because our first point is the context is threatening and I'll get into more detail. But just to make sure if you haven't had a chance to read from chapter four, verse, excuse me, from chapter three, verse one, a little context. Uh, Peter and John have been arrested, put in prison, brought before the Sanhedrin. They're not sure what to do with them. They, they threaten them. They release them from prison, but they, but, but they give them a threat saying, listen, if you preach the gospel again, it's, you, know, it's over. you cannot do this. And so the, these now, Peter and John, are coming back to the rest of the believers there in the church in Jerusalem. Pick up in verse 23. When Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the nations, why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. As we dive into this text, let's start with this threatening context that we have before us. Your first point there. I mean, what happened? The big picture of what happened is this. There had been this, this, uh, this lame man who... Uh, we find out later, for 40 years, uh, he was 40 years old, so he had been placed, even as a young man, outside this particular gate of the temple, and he was just a constant fixture there. When you went to the temple, you went by this guy. In fact, it's a whole other thought and fascinating to think of that Jesus would have gone by this guy. And yet Jesus, because it was his plan, didn't heal this man then, but left it for the disciples to be the ones who through the power of Christ would heal him. That's a whole nother thought to think about how God uses us uh, to do his work uh, and perform his ministry. But here this guy is a fixture here. Everybody knows him. Everybody knows this guy is lame. Everybody knows he can't walk. Everybody knows he's carried. And Peter and John heal them by the power of Christ. And then they begin to preach the gospel when people are saying, What's, what happened? What's going on? And they begin to talk about the, the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And, it, and it, you read in there, 2,000 more people, the church grows by 2,000 people. And the, the Sanhedrin, the, the leaders, the Jewish leaders, they, they can't have this. They can't, this looks like some kind of rogue cult thing that is, that is not in line with, with the Jewish religion. And so they, in, in that context, arrest Peter and uh, John, bring them in. 
They talk to them, then they question them. The problem is that the guy that's been lame forever is standing next to them when he's talking and they don't know what to do about it. They dismiss Peter and John and they says that they have a conversation. The rulers and the high priests have a conversation about this. I would have loved to have been in there for that conversation to know how that went down. And then they bring Peter and John back in and they just said, you got to stop doing this. All right, you, can't, you cannot preach about Christ anymore. And it says that they threatened them. So they've been in prison, they're sent out, and, and then we pick up, look, turn over in your Bibles to chapter 4, verse 1. This is part of the context here. Give us an idea about the chief priests and the elders. Um, as they were speaking to the people, as Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So we've gone from 3,000 church now to a 2,000 member church. And then pick up again in verse 15. Verse 15, it says, uh, But when they had commanded them to leave the council, that's mean commanded John, Peter and John to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them that is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that they may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more anyone in his name. So they called them, charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot speak of what we have not seen and heard, or what we've seen and heard. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. So they go back, and people of God, the believers now, recognize that that the power structures are not going to just overlook them. They're not going to just, it's not going to be okay. It's not going to be okay to be the church of Jesus Christ. It's not going to happen. And so the believers now are finding themselves marginal to power and culture. In other words, the power structures in the country in which they lived were against them as believers in this church. Culture itself was against them as, uh, as believers. And they were facing the possibility of imprisonment if they went out and spoke to anyone about Jesus. And eventually we find out just a chapter later, they go ahead and do it anyways. And Peter and John are arrested again, only this time before they're released, they're beaten. And then sent back. So the threat of violence against them is taking place as well. This is the context in which they pray. It reminds me of our, of our brothers and sisters in China right now. I think we've talked about this plenty, but in the last three years, the, uh, the persecution in China has ramped up pretty significantly, including closing down churches and arresting pastors. Some of our, our own mission partners are still in prison there. I mean, that's the reality of what's taking place exactly right now. Now, the church in China has not for a long time had any, any power uh, any, uh, uh, they've always been marginal to the power structures and to culture. Always. They've never had any law on the books that was helping them do what they needed to do. They didn't have, a, they didn't have, they had no candidate for, for mayor that was like, gosh, we want to get that guy in the office. Like that's never been the case for the church in China. Now the church in China is probably the largest church 
in the world. So it's not stopped them. It's not stopped them that the, that the, the political power and the culture has been, has been allied against them the whole time. That hasn't stopped the church from growing in China. But this is the context in, in which our brothers and sisters in China exist right now. And what do we hear them doing? What, what, what do we see happening when that's the context for believers here in Acts chapter 4? What do they do? What do we do? They go to prayer. That's where they go. They, that's what it says here. Verse 23, they heard this report. Verse 23, and the very next verse, and then they cried to the Lord. Like that's their response when they hear the report. So let's look at this prayer in our next point, uh, beginning with our next point, that the power was unmatched. They go to the one who has the power. They are in a context where they do not have the power. They don't have a chance at the power. And their, their response is not to figure out how to get cultural power, not to how to get political power. Their response is, we're going to go to the one who has the power. And we're going to speak to him. So in the face of powerlessness, they begin their prayers by proclaiming the truth about power. I love this. They do two things. First of all, they speak about God as, and proclaim and praise him as creator. And this, is good, this is a good form for our prayers. When we face worry and fear, when we feel marginalized, when we feel powerless, where should we begin our prayers? We begin by praising God, first of all, that he is creator. He's the one that spoke things into existence. One of my favorite songs that has lines speaking about the creation um, says this, as you speak, speaking about God, God, as you speak, a hundred million galaxies are formed. I've just, I've sometimes just paused the song and just thought about that. As God just spoke, a hundred million galaxies were formed by his speaking. He is creator. And the second thing they do is they praise him and proclaim the truth that he is sovereign. That he reigns over all. He says, uh, he's going to go into this next, these next verses, but it's beginning with uh, sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth. There's the creator part. But starting with sovereign Lord, that's what they proclaim him as. And then later on, they're going to talk about how he is sovereign. And their whole point is, you're the one reigning over everything. In fact, if you skip down to verse 28... It says, speaking about this in their prayers, they said, these things happened against Jesus. And then look at what verse 28 says, to do whatever your hand, God, and your plan, God, had predestined to take place. And they're, they're proclaiming the, the, the persecution, the, the um, crucifixion of Christ, the persecution that we're facing. All of that, we know God, is in your plan. It's in your plan. In fact, when you talk to our brothers and sisters in China, they'll, they'll tell you the reason they think God has allowed this. And they think God has allowed it. They think God is in complete control in China. They have no doubt about that. They're not looking and saying, well, I feel like God has lifted his hand from China. What are we going to do? That's not what they think. <laughs> they think God is in control. And they think they know why. They're facing persecution. We'll get to that a little bit later. 
Now, of course, we, as growing up in a place and in a culture where we as Christians have enjoyed some sense of feeling like we're not marginalized, some sense in feeling like we do have some political power, some sense in feeling like at least at some point we, had, uh, we weren't marginalized in the culture. As a result of that, we, and I, I count myself in the same boat on this, we can often feel like, man, God has lifted, God has lifted his hand from this country. In fact, I had a friend of mine ask me uh, two weeks ago, Todd, do you think God has lifted his hand from America? And I said, I, I said, no, I don't think he lifts his hand. I, I, God's, God isn't like, oh, I'm out of here. God's involved here. I said, I, I think maybe it has to do more with how we're interpreting God's plans and God's thoughts and these things. And oftentimes, we, our weakness, we have many strengths as Christians here in America. We really do. God has, has blessed us with things that help us um, in our sanctification. But there's areas where we need to grow, where I need to grow. And one of them is when I feel powerless, I have a tendency to feel like God has lost control. And that's just not true. In fact, this past Thursday, Monday, Thursday service, I had the, the privilege to, to preach from Colossians chapter uh, 2, which speaks about Christ reigning from the cross, not reigning after the cross. And one of the, one of the um, really uniquely American ideas is that the cross was kind of a defeat and the resurrection is the victory, but that's not how anybody in the New Testament writes about it. And that's not how the early church saw it at all. They totally saw the cross as the victory. Absolutely saw Christ as reigning from the cross. And one of the things, one of the things that, that Christ did on the cross is he defeated, and, and dis, it says in, in Colossians chapter 2, that he disarmed Satan and all his, his uh, uh, spiritual uh, forces of evil. He disarmed them. And one of the things he disarmed Satan of is the power of evil in this world. And you say, well, Todd, there's still a lot of evil in this world. What happened in Nashville last week? And Well, here's the thing. As one theologian put it, Satan has been defeated. That's a fact. He has not conceded defeat yet. <laughs> And some of you older men in here, you'd understand this when you look at World War II history. We've talked about this before. June 6, 1944, D-Day. Two days later, everybody knew World War II was over. The battle had been won. The Nazis were going to lose. We knew that. The Nazis knew that. They didn't concede defeat for several more months. <laughs> And there were still some casualties. But at that point, nobody, nobody doubted that the war was going to be won. But man, that mop-up operation sometimes was difficult. Brothers, that's really what we are in. Christ at his cross has defeated the enemy. We are in a mop-up operation. There's no doubt. There's no doubt that Christ and his kingdom is coming and is transforming hearts and minds. And that that's the reality that we're in. So in their prayers, they go to that power. 
And they start with that power and say, we're going to that truth. We're not going to believe this about the powerlessness that we might feel. Second thing, or third thing we see in this prayer is that the promise was sure. The promise was sure. Verse 25 and 26, this is a quote from Psalm 2. So what, our, what this early church is doing is the very thing we saw in the Old Testament prayers. Remember when we talked about the Old Testament prayers, we were talking about that phrase, calling on the name of the Lord, that that's, the, that's how they describe prayer in the Old Testament. And the reason they described it that way is because the name of the Lord, the calling on his name was calling upon his character, on, on who he was and what he had promised. So when they were praying, what they were saying is, God, you said this, can you make, please fulfill that? And this is exactly what these, these New Testament believers are doing. They're saying, God, you said this, so now fulfill this. you got to turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is one of the most interesting psalms in all of Scripture. So encouraging, so very, very encouraging. And what they're quoting there in their prayer is the first uh, two verses. But I want to read all 12 verses. It's not a very long psalm, but this is so, so wonderful. And a great prayer for us, a great form for our own prayers when we pray about what's happening in our country or our city. This is about, this is about God's power and about Christ himself. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. So every ruler, every mayor, every, every person that has any inch of power is arraying themselves against, against Christ, against his anointed one, against the power of God, against the power of truth, against the power of goodness, of love, all of those things. That's what's taking place. We see it throughout history. We see it all over the world. We see it even in our own country, in our own city at times. What does God do? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Like, God's like, really? That's what you got? That's what you're doing? The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, and this is God's answer, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's speaking of Christ. I will bring Christ to defeat you. Verse 7, I will tell of the degree. The Lord said to me, this is now Christ speaking about his heavenly father. Or excuse me, the heavenly father speaking about Christ. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." Another way to translate that, I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. I've, one of my favorite missiologists uh, years ago said this is, this is what he prays, Psalm 2 verse 8, for countries around the world. And I begin as a youth pastor praying it for high schools and middle schools. When I came to Memphis, Tennessee to work here as a youth pastor, I would pray regularly, Lord, please give White Station High School as, a, as an inheritance to your son. God, please give Memphis University School as an inheritance to your son. Please give St. Mary's as an inheritance to your son. Please give Houston High School as an inheritance to your son. Please give ECS as an inheritance to your son. I, go on. Please give this city as an inheritance to your son. 
Let it be his place. That's what these New Testament believers are looking at. They're looking and saying and praying the very words of Psalm 2. Go on, verse 10. Now therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and perish, and you perish in the way. For his wrath, wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. God is unconcerned in the sense that he is not rattled. He is not like, oh no. Oh no, that happened? He knows what's going on. He, he has a plan. And he's, and, he's, and he's going to bring about his kingdom. And we're going, to get to, we're going to get to see glimpses of that even as we go through our own life. This promise was sure, and they went to that promise in their prayers, and they, and they prayed the very words uh, of, of God, praying Psalm 2. So number four, we've seen the power unmatched. We've seen the promise was sure. Number four, the plan was clear. The battle plan was clear. I don't know if you read about this over the weekend. I was reading an article in Wall Street Journal on Monday about the latest security leaks that have taken place. Say it's the, the greatest, possibly the greatest security leak um, uh, in the last decade of classified documents uh, coming out of uh, the United States regarding military operations, uh, Ukraine military operations, Ukraine capabilities, um, and even, even describing some of their, uh, uh, their own battle plans for the spring offensive. And, of course, what's, what's, what that means is, um, or what's threatening about that is, that then, therefore, the Russians would now have uh, a better and, 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 frankly, a secret now understanding of how much ammunition, what kind of weapons the Ukrainians have, and where they were going to launch their offensive from, their spring offensive from. Well, that, that kind of throws into things into a disarray. You know, it really, is a, it really is a pretty dramatic leak of classified information because now you just wonder if you're part of the Ukrainian force, if, you're, if you should go ahead and move forward with your plan because the enemy knows a lot about your plan. It's a big deal. Well, here's something cool, brothers. You and I know the battle plan of the enemy. <laughs> we know it. We got the blueprint. We know, we know what forces. We, we got this. Let me show you what I mean by this. Um, first of all, we understand, they mention it here, that it's an attack against Jesus. But Jesus told his disciples that before. If you turn back a few pages in, in, uh, to John chapter 15, you're going to see that Jesus told his disciples, let me tell you what the battle plan of Satan will be. Let me tell you how this will go down so you'll understand when it happens to you. In John chapter 15, this is the upper room discourse. Jesus says to his disciples, verse 18, John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you kept my word, they would also keep your words. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know the one who sent me. 
So Jesus made it clear to all believers, beginning with his disciples, hey, listen, they're actually not going to like you. They're actually, they don't, and, and the reason is they don't like me. <laughs> this, this, what's taking place here, it's, it's ultimately not attack against you. It's an attack against me, but because you belong to me and you have my name stamped on you, they're going to come, the evil one, and, and all forces of evil and all people controlled by that are going to come after you. So the attack is going to be against Jesus. Go back to our uh, verses in uh, John, excuse me, Acts chapter 4. Attack is going to be against Jesus. Uh, the evil one's going to use earthly means. Okay, so verse 27 in chap- chapter 4 of Acts, it says, For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So we know that the evil one is attacking the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's going to use earthly means to try to pursue that. We also know that it's a spiritual battle, right? Because we read in Ephesians chapter 6, for a battle is not against flesh and blood. So even though it looks like earthly means, we need to remember that the battle is against Christ being used by earthly means, but that the battle is a spiritual battle. Paul makes that clear. The battle is not against flesh and blood. But this is against the forces of evil in the spiritual realms. And so we have to make sure (laughs) that the weapons we use are effective in that realm. Too many Christians at different times, and certainly in America, are seeking to use weapons to fight an earthly battle. But Christ has already told us what the battle plan is and what it looks like and has made it clear that it's a spiritual battle. So we need to be using spiritual weapons in order to fight the real battle and not be distracted by what Satan's doing to try to make it an earthly battle. Right? So we use spiritual means because it's a spiritual battle. And last thing, so we know attack is against Jesus. Use, he's using the earthly means. The devil's using earthly means. But it is a spiritual battle, not an earthly battle. And this is wonderful. Verse 28 of Acts chapter 4. God is in control. God is in control of the whole battlefield. In a way that's hard for our minds to grasp, certainly hard for my mind to grasp, Satan is just a lackey doing whatever God is allowing him to do in order to get to God's ultimate plan. God is clearly in control. I'm sure you've heard people say, hey, it's important, hey, it's important to make sure that, uh, you know, that you have, you know, so reading the Wall Street Journal on my iPad the other morning, it's good to have my Wall Street Journal here and my Bible open here. It's good to have both of them open together. Right? It's, it's, it's not good to listen to the news or to read the news without the filter of Scripture. It'll mess you up. You'll be all over the place. Your emotions, your thoughts, your, your ideas, it'll be... But when, you, but when you're reading current events through the reality of Scripture, man, it changes you. You see it very differently. In fact, you see it correctly. And you know what? You're not surprised. You're just not surprised. I remember the first time I recognized this was back in the early 90s. Back in the early 90s, there was this thing that was this kind of uproar thing that took place because the University of North Carolina English Department and the Duke University English Department had started this, this, uh, this philosophy or this, this part of their department was uh, about the business of deconstructing human language. It's the first time I'd ever heard 
of this idea of, well, what does that word actually mean? And the word is a social construct and, and deconstructing it in a way that made, started to make feel like words possibly could have no meaning, right? And, you know, people are like, what is that? What's going on? And I'm like, ah, because I knew my Bible. I'm like, ah, I know what this is. I know what this is. This is Satan's attack against the word of God. See, the only way we know about God is through human language. That's how God chose to communicate to us. He gave us his word. Isn't it clever? Isn't it clever, though maybe not if you're reading your Bibles, for Satan to go, okay, you know what? I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to undermine just language itself and the meaning of words. I'm going, to get, I'm going to try to get people to question if you can even trust human language as a, a reality and expression of those things. I'm like, ah, clever, good try, Satan. <laughs> and begin to understand, and so you're not surprised. I wasn't like, oh, wow, God's lost control. I'm like, nope, it's just part of the battle, just part of what's going on. His battle plan is clear. Power is unmatched, promise is sure. Battle plan was clear. First uh, chapter, uh, point number five, sorry. Point number five, the request was for Courage. This is the part that fascinates me, brothers. They proclaim the truth about God. They proclaim his power. They, they claim his promises. They, they speak about God being in control of even the battle. And then here they go for their request. This is the request. And now, Lord. And now, Lord. And brothers, what would we ask for there? What would we ask for? Well, I know what I've asked for sometimes. And now, Lord, please remove the threat. And now, Lord, please keep us safe. And now, Lord, please change the people in power. Those aren't, there's nothing sinful about praying that. I'm just not sure it should be the first words out of our mouth. According to Scripture, it doesn't seem to be that it should be the first word. It shouldn't be the priority of our prayers. What do these believers pray in the midst of powerlessness? And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. What do they say? They say, God, give us boldness to, to speak your word. In the midst of these threats, help us to have courage. Just like those two officers. Not, hey, I'm going to stay in the car and be safe. Hey, let's hopefully get everybody get safe. Hey, let's hope somebody else removes the threat. Hey. No, they just run to the gunfire. <laughs> They're afraid. And I guess, I don't know if those guys are believers or not. But I imagine they were praying for boldness. Lord, help me turn the next corner. Lord, there's gunshots upstairs. Help me run up these stairs. I, I know the person with the gun is around the corner. Help me go around the corner. Help me keep going. Help me run to where the danger is. That's what these believers pray. Give us boldness to speak your word. And then let us watch you work. While the Lord works, while you do heal things, let us be in there, in the battle. Y'all, this is what the Chinese church has been praying 
for themselves. They've concluded, I've heard pastors say this, they say this is what we think when we gather together as pastors. We in the Chinese church got too comfortable because the government had left us alone. We got too comfortable with our possessions. We got too comfortable with our big church buildings. We, I mean, every, as this guy was talking, I was sitting right about where Jerry is sitting. He's up here talking, and I'm like, "Woo, these words are stinging. <laughs> we got comfortable, they said, and we thought the Lord wants to make sure that we are, are His and not just seeking to make a place for ourselves in this country, but that we are always fixing our eyes on Christ. And he's sanctifying us. That's what they said. And so we're asking the Lord for boldness <laughs> to proclaim his word in prison, to proclaim his word in our homes because we don't have church buildings anymore. <laughs> Lord, please give us boldness. The request was for courage. And then finally, because I know we're getting short on time here, the answer we see in verse 31 was evident. The answer was evident. It says, When they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It is cool that the place was shaken. I know all of us are, we, you have a tendency to look at that and like, man, that must have been awesome. Be at that prayer meeting, and it was like the place was, like, you could just, it was palpable, the presence of the Holy Spirit. But the real answer is not that the place was shaken. The real answer is that they were able to speak the word of boldness. The real answer to the prayer was not that the Lord, by his Holy Spirit's power, shook that room. The real answer that was evident was that Christ-centered, Holy Spirit believers continued on God's mission with courage. That's, that's, that's how we know it was answered. Not because the place was shaken, but because they left the place and continue to speak with boldness and courage in the midst of all the threats. Oh, fascinated by that. You know, brothers, I, I've been so encouraged by many of y'all's prayers, your comments. Uh, we've faced great difficulties and, and a sense of great threat. And certainly our wives and our daughters and our granddaughters and our sisters have faced great threat in this city. And there's all this talk about People talking about should we stay in Memphis or not stay in Memphis or move here or move there. And, you know, turns out that evil is everywhere, not just in Memphis. But there's a sense in which, oh, well, you know, what are we going to do about this? And I've been very encouraged by you in particular, brothers, who um, you're still here. Many of you said, I'm staying here. I love this city. And I think I told you before that I that I've thought to myself, I, I have friends in other cities that seem safer, that are on the list of America's you know, most amazing cities to live in, greatest, most comfortable cities to live in, and they're very proud of that being you know, number five on that list, number three on that list. And I've thought to myself, only told my wife, and I think I've told you, but apparently this is on tape, so I'm telling everybody, that, uh, that I think if Paul and his buddies were living in one of those cities that's on the top five list of greatest, safest places to live in America, and he was reading or hearing the news about Memphis, I think he would turn to his buddies and say, hey, we got to get to Memphis. We got to run to Memphis, just like those two officers. We got to go to where the battle is. That's what he would say. 
I know he would say that because you see it in Acts chapter 16 when God says, hey, you need to go to Macedonia where the battle is. And they say, okay, let's go. Let's go there. And I've seen us do that. You know, we're, we're, feel like we're running to Memphis, but brothers, I think what God's word is telling us as we run to Memphis, as we're here, and this is the part I haven't seen us doing as well, we need to run to prayer. We need to run to prayer. It is sad to me that it's hard to gather a prayer meeting on a consistent basis of more than 15 or 20 people over the age of 18. Especially sad to me because at least at Second Prez, this past Tuesday morning, I can show you a picture, and that happens every Tuesday morning. There's a group of teenagers led by our youth staff that meet every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m., and that group usually numbers between 40 and 50 people, students that meet every Tuesday morning to pray for their schools and pray for their cities, and they've been doing it that meeting's been going on for over 20 years. I've tried to start that among adults, and I've found it <laughs> very difficult to get more, to get 10 people to show up on a consistent basis. As we think about prayer and the battle to prayer and the courage to prayer and where we need to run in this spiritual battle, we got to figure out, brothers, how we're not just running to the place of danger, but we're running to prayer. We can't fight this battle with earthly weapons. We cannot. Because it's a spiritual battle. We have got to use the spiritual weapons that God has given us. Word, worship, and prayer. That's what he's given us. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reminder of Acts chapter 4 and this amazing prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the reality that um, these are people just like us, and they were afraid, and they were worried, and they didn't always do it the right way, and they struggled in their churches to even be a good church at times. And yet, Heavenly Father, in the midst of their worry and fear and powerlessness and in the midst of their sometimes stumbling in their sanctification, there is this prayer that gives us a great framework for how we would pray in the midst of our weakness and powerlessness. Father, let us more and more be led to prayer, run to prayer, and to pray prayers like this. Lord, do this for the sake of your name that you might give this city, Memphis, Tennessee, as an inheritance to your son. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.